We are grateful that you are here. We are thankful that you've chosen to be with us on this magnificent Lord's Day. And we are so thankful that, uh, that we have this time to worship God. You know, we've been going through a series all this year called His Word. And we have a devotional book that our congregation purchased and that they are going through. And each week we are taking a passage of Scripture that we studied during the week in our devotional time and focusing in on it on Sunday morning. This morning, of course, we're looking at Luke chapter 15, verse 21. We're looking at everything around that, too, but specifically we're zeroing in on Luke 15, 21. I want to start by asking you this. See if any of these lines, famous or probably infamous, really, see if you remember any of these lines spoken by these people. My name is Rafael Palmero, and I am a professional baseball player. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Remember that? How about this one? I've said it for longer than seven years. I have never doped. Remember who that was? Lance Armstrong. Read my lips. No new taxes. That was H.W. Bush. And, of course, this one everybody knows, at least from uh, my generation and older. I am not a crook. Richard Milhouse Nixon. You know, all of those were lies uttered by famous people, and those lies made them infamous, if you will. And, you know, those were, I think we could say, maybe life-changing words for those people. Well, the text we're studying this morning shows us three life-changing words uttered by a son that had left home. And those three words, very simply put, were, I have sinned. Or, I was wrong. Life-changing words for sure, and words that if we were to utter, they would change the course of our lives as well. We could stop right there, really. We could end the sermon this morning by saying, that's the lesson. If you would just say the words, I was wrong or I have sinned, if, if you're broken, if you're beaten down, if you're wounded by sin, just repent confess your sin, ask God to forgive you, come forward as we stand and sing, right? It'd be the shortest sermon ever, but really that would be a sermon. Because if you have a sin problem, you need to fix it. Whatever that means. But it's going to start with saying, I was wrong. I have sinned. Come forward as we stand and sing, right? Don't do that. Didn't mean to give you false hope. I was wrong for doing that. Sorry. Really, it is quite simple. On one level. Quite simple. Say, I have sinned. Confess to God your sin. And let God work. These words, I have sinned, were uttered by a gentleman who was living in a pigsty, far from home. It wasn't hard for him, at least eventually. And it shouldn't be hard for us either. It shouldn't be hard for us to say the words, I have sinned or I was wrong. And yet, so often it is. Kind of like many years ago, I was having a discussion with a gentleman. And I was trying to inform this person that Knoxville is the capital of Tennessee. I was very adamant that Knoxville is the capital of Tennessee. This gentleman was just as adamant that Nashville is the capital of Tennessee. And so we went back and forth for several minutes. This was in the days before Google, so you couldn't really look it up. 
So we get out a map, and guess what? The capital of Tennessee is Nashville. And I respond by saying, well, you know, I thought we were talking about had Knoxville ever been the capital of Tennessee, because it, it had at one point. Long, long ago, Knoxville used to be the capital. It was the first capital of Tennessee. I thought that's what we were talking about, because, of course, everybody knows that Nashville's now the capital of Tennessee. My pride wouldn't allow me to eat that much crow. And I'm putting myself out there, but you're no different. Y'all have all been in the same situation. We like to call balls and strikes, don't we? We like to be umpires when it comes to other people. But when the tables are turned, we don't much like somebody calling balls and strikes on us. It was a company that decided they wanted to change the course of their business, and so they hired a brash, young, new CEO. And he came in determined to trim the fat and, and cut away those folks who weren't pulling their weight. And so he's taking a tour of the facilities, and he sees a, a young man leaning against the wall doing nothing. And seeing other employees gathered around, he decides he's going to make an example of this young man and show his, his clout. And so he walks over to him, and he says, young man, how much do you make? He says, I don't know, $500 a week, why? And the young brass CEO pulls $1,000 out of his pocket and hands it to him. He says, here's two weeks' worth of pay, now get out of here. Feels pretty good about himself. He looks at the other employees and says, "He's able to tell me what that guy was good for." And one of them said, "Well, it keeps the dominant delivery guy." I said, "Me." This young brass CEO was pretty full of himself and could stick his chest out, feel like he did something right, until he learned that he did something wrong. I think a lot of us are the same way sometimes. At least we have been at one point in our lives. We don't like to admit defeat, and so we tend to rationalize and justify so that we can get away from placing the blame upon ourselves. Kind of like the, the young college student who had racked up a, a pretty sizable amount of parking tickets that he hadn't paid. And so he decides, he's driving around campus with a friend, he decides to park in a no-parking zone, and his friend said, what are you doing? He said, what do you mean? He said, You've got all these parking tickets that are unpaid. Why are you parking in a no-parking zone? And the guy says, you know, look, I have come up with a system that won't have me have any more encounters with the law. And the friend said, what are you, what are you talking about? He said, well, I've studied it from every angle. I've studied the research. I've done the data. And I've come up with this. I'm going to remove my windshield wipers. And isn't that how many of us act or react? We think we'll get around it, not by accepting the blame or, or, or shouldering the responsibility, but rather just removing the windshield wipers. That's not how this whole thing works. Kind of like the guy from commercial. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works, right? Many of us have these fig leaves that we use to cover up the sin in our lives. These fig leaves of justification, of rationalization, being judgmental of others, kind of redirecting or diverting the attention away from ourselves. But rewind back to the Garden of Eden, and you see that kind of blame shifting, don't you? Here's what Eve said after she took of that forbidden fruit. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Adam rationalized it like this. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. You know what's tricky about both of those responses? Is their truth. They are. I mean, really, at the base level, they're right. Both of them were right, but they were making excuses. 
because at the end of the day, the devil didn't force me to eat, did she? At the end of the day, Adam was there and should have stepped up and said, no, 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 we're not doing this. But he didn't. And it led to their downfall. At the end of the day, there was no one else responsible but those two, right? So even if what they spoke was pretty well true, it didn't get them off the hook. There are three enemies of personal responsibility, three enemies that many people use in our society to get themselves off the book. And the first one is the rights mentality. I have my rights, and that's all I care about. You know, we have a lot of rights in our culture today, don't we? We have animal rights, we have civil rights, we have criminal rights, we have the Bill of Rights. You know what we need? We need a Bill of Responsibilities. Wait a minute, we do, don't we? It's that thing in your head or by your side there in the pew. We have a Bible that points out to us that sin is a personal choice and that there's no one to blame but ourselves. Instead of dealing with the wrong things in my life, though, I want to justify them and I want to place the blame somewhere else. I want to say that I have the right to do this, whether it's right or wrong. The second enemy of personal responsibility is the victim mentality. See this one a lot in culture, right? No matter what happens, even if I'm the perpetrator, I'm still the victim. I'm always the victim. Nothing is truly ever my fault. Even if the finger is pointing in no other direction but at me, I play it off. I was born this way. My parents raised me this way. It's the school system. It's the government. Whatever it is, I'm the victim. An employee fired for constantly showing up late for work files a lawsuit against his former employer, claiming that he is the victim of what his lawyer dubs chronic lateness syndrome. In Framingham, Massachusetts, a young man steals a car and is killed while driving it. The young man's family sues the proprietor of the parking lot for having such loose security. A man who, by his own admission, has exposed himself between 10,000 and 20,000 times and convicted on more than 30 occasions, is turned down for a job as a park attendant in Dane County, Wisconsin. Because of his arrest record, he's turned down for that job. He sues, however, on grounds that he had never exposed himself in that particular park, only in libraries and laundromats. The employment officials ever accommodating to the expansion of human rights, agree to make a determination of probable cause that the flasher was the victim of illegal job discrimination. Those are all true stories. And it all highlights the fact that I'm a victim. It's never my fault. It's always someone else's. The third enemy of personal responsibility is the entitlement mentality, which is just the idea that I deserve everything. Whatever it is, I deserve it. What's mine is yours, and what's yours is mine. You know, that's, that's not the mentality of the entitlement person. The one who buys into this philosophy says, what's mine is mine, and what's yours is mine. You know, in the alphabet, I comes before you, but all they can see is I. They never see the you. They never get past the I to see the you. It's all about me. It's all about what I can have. It's an expectation of privilege that leaves equality feeling like oppression. Billy Joel saying, I don't care what they say anymore. This is my life. Go ahead with your own life. Leave me alone. And Frank Sinatra saying, I did it my way. 
Matt Davis is saying, uh, Lord, it's hard to be humble and perfect in every way. Bobby Brown saying, my prerogative. It's the narcissist playlist. And it's very evident in our culture today. It's all about me. It's all about my life. I don't care about you or your life. It's all about me. What if the prodigal son had sang a different tune? What if he had sang a tune like, I don't care what you say anymore. This is my life. He did that for a while, didn't he? We'd have a very different story if at his funeral the theme song was, I did it my way. But obviously, we have a better ending to at least that part of the story where the prodigal son returns home, all because he said three little words that changed the direction of his life. So he gets the sandals, he gets the royal robe, he gets the fattened calf, he gets the celebration, the father hugging and kissing him and welcoming him home. He gets all of that because he said those three words and he meant them. Notice how this parable starts out, verse 12. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. That's the right mentality, is it? It's mine. I'm entitled to it. Give it to me. I mean, in essence, the prodigal son here is saying, I don't want to have to wait until you die. I want it right now. So give it to me. It's my privilege. Verses 28 and following. But he became angry and was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat, so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. Entitlement. Rights. No sympathy. You see it with the older son as well, don't you? You know, we call this the parable of the prodigal son. It's actually the parable of the prodigal sons. Because there were two prodigal sons in the story. Only one left home. The other one stayed. And what you have to know about this parable, there's a deeper meaning involved here. It's not just about a son leaves home, spends his wealth on loose living, and then returns home, repents, and the father accepts it. That, that, that's a great, great story in and of itself. But there's a deeper meaning here. You can go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 15, and you see that there are two groups of people in the audience. There are sinners and tax collectors, and there are Pharisees and scribes. And so this parable, or these three parables, are talking to two groups of people. Jesus is trying to hit the tax collectors and the sinners between the eyes to say, look, you can come home. Jesus will search for you. He wants you in his kingdom. Then the other side of that is Jesus talking to the Pharisees and the scribes and saying, yeah, you're the older son. You're your brother's keeper. You should be the ones who are out leading the way, looking for the lost sheep or the lost coin and celebrating when one comes home. But that's not who you are. You're pompous. You're arrogant. You're the religious elite, but you're more lost or you're just as lost as these others that you're condemning. So that's kind of the deeper meaning that we have to realize. The older son represents who? Well, the Pharisees and the scribes. People who thought that it was their right to the kingdom, that they were entitled to it because of their heritage. But you know what? I read the response of this older son, and you know what? I'd probably do the same way. And I think if you thought long and hard about it, you'd have to admit you might be too. Look, he goes and he takes what 
He takes what was his, but he hadn't died yet. He demands it early, and he goes, and, and he spends it on loose living. He's living with the pigs. He decides to come home, and you throw a party for him. And here I am, this whole time, keeping my head down, staying in my lane, doing my job. Whatever throws a party for me. His attitude was wrong. His attitude was wrong. He should have been his brother's keeper. He should have been excited for his brother returning home because a deeply religious person, like they claim to be, would be happy for one who was coming back home, who was good left and had come back. Same is true for us. As Christians, we should be ecstatic when one who is strayed comes back. I was wrong. Should be the mantra of all of us. When we fail, when we fall, we should be able to utter those words. And we should be helping one another utter those words. Is there a man for that? Remember the name Jim Baker? Jim Baker, along with his wife, Tammy Faye Baker, used to host the uh, PTL show on, on television. Baker was convicted of mail fraud, of wire fraud, and conspiracy and served five years in prison. While he was in prison, he said it was the first time he read the Bible all the way through. And in reading the Bible all the way through, he realized that he had been plucking verses out of context, that he had been pretexting his way through Scripture to, to perpetuate this idea that God just wants you to be healthy and wealthy, this prosperity gospel. He wrote a book entitled, I Was Born. And in that book, here's an excerpt. He says, the more I've studied the Bible, however, I had to admit that the prosperity message did not line up with the tenor of Scripture. My heart was crushed to think that I led so many people astray. I was appalled that I could have been so wrong, and I was deeply grateful that God had not struck me dead as a false prophet. Wow. What would you have done in that situation? I mean, what if you were someone that had spent your entire life teaching that the only way to get to heaven is by saying a prayer and letting Jesus into your heart? And then you honestly examine the scriptures and you see, oh, wow, baptism's a part of this equation, too. What would you do? I mean, if you are to change your teaching and your preaching, it's most certainly going to cause you to be ousted from whatever fellowship you're a part of, right? If you work for a church that teaches, preaches that, you might be ousted from there too. But how much is this worth to you to say I was wrong? How about if you were, if you were brought up, if you were taught that, that we're all born with original sin? And that when you enter into this world, you, you've got to be sprinkled as a baby. And what if you study scripture and you realize, oh well, that concept of original sin is faulty. That sin isn't inherited, that I don't commit sin in the womb, right? And so now I have to come to the realization that, okay, I'm not born with sin, it's a choice, and uh, oh yeah, baptism is for believers and it's not by sprinkling. What do you do? Are you willing to change what you've taught and preached and believed your whole life? Are you willing to say I was wrong? What if you're brought up in a household that didn't believe in God? What if you were taught that, that faith is a crutch and it's for the weak. 
and you study the Bible with someone and they convince you that considering all the evidence, God is real and you should put your faith and trust in Him. What do you do? Do you go against the teaching of your parents? Even though it will likely mean that they don't want to have anything to do with you? Tough questions. Can we say I was wrong when it means that maybe everything around us will fall apart? Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, it reads like this. It says, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And he grew up together with him and his children. He would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had, who had come to him. And then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the land of Corporal, because he did this thing and had no compassion. David was incensed that this happened. Now, at this point, it seems that David had moved on from the sin with Bathsheba, the murder of Uriah. seems that he was living life, doing his thing, not thinking much of it. But God couldn't talk about it, so he sends a prophet Nathan onto the scene to confront David and to paint a picture that was a self-portrait. Nathan, in essence, is showing a mirror to David. Because David is incensed about this man who stole this one little ewe lamb and slaughtered it and cooked it up for his guest. And Nathan says, hey, you're the man. David deserved to die two times over. The sin with Bathsheba, the murder of Uriah, were both sins punishable by death under the old law. Should have been stolen. He deserved to die. Nathan says, you're that man. You deserve to die. And this is where I give David a lot of credit. Because David is really known for two episodes in his life, right? The killing of the giant and being defeated by the giant of sin. But he was also a man after God's own heart. And the only reason he was a man after God's own heart is because of what we read in, I believe it's verse 13 later on. He says, I have sinned. David didn't say to Nathan, get out of my sight. I'm the king. I'm not going to listen to this. David could have had him beheaded. He could have had him thrown in prison. David doesn't shift the blame. He doesn't blame Bathsheba. He doesn't say, well, if she had been bathing on the rooftop that night, none of this ever would have happened. He doesn't do that. David takes ownership of his sin. He says, I have sinned. I was wrong. You know, that's going to cost you. It's going to cost you to say those words and mean them. It cost David, didn't it? But I think we learned something from David here when he was uh, away from God, so to speak. We learned something from David. We learned a few things from David and how he handled his sin. And I think they apply to us today. First of all, we, we learned to accept all responsibility. Because it's your sin. You're the problem, not somebody else. 
accept all responsibility. David said, I have sinned. Emphasis on the I. He wasn't a victim. He wasn't entitled to anything. He was the perpetrator. There was no shedding the blame. He didn't point to Bathsheba and her role in the affair. He pointed the finger directly at himself, and he said, I did this. I am guilty. I am sorry, God. Secondly, agreed with God. David agreed with God, as pointed out to him by the prophet Nathan. It took that prophet to help David finally see his sin, but he saw it the way that God saw his sin after that episode. Notice verses 9 and 10. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. This was dire and drastic, and David needed to see that. Which is why God sent Nathan on the scene. David did see. And it changed everything, right? We must see sin the way that God sees it. When we see sin the way that God sees it, which is evil in the sight of a holy God, we cannot afford to miss that we need repentance. We need forgiveness. In David's contract prayer in Psalm 51, he says, Against you and you only I have sinned. Which is interesting because he sinned against others too, didn't he? Certainly sinned against Uriah, and certainly sinned with Bathsheba, but the only thing that mattered in that moment was his sin against God. That's it. Got to get God right before I can get anything else right. And finally, the third thing is we need to apply Christ's blood to our sin. Only God can forgive your sin. Only Christ's blood will wash away your sin. Those three little words, I have sinned, are simple yet profound. And look what followed here. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. I don't want to die, do you? Not in a spiritual sense. I'm going to die in a physical sense. I want to live with God, and I don't want to just live with Him here and now. I want to live with Him for all eternity. And the way that happens is by me applying Christ's blood to my sin. By being washed in the waters of baptism where I contact the blood of Christ and I become a new, regenerate person. I become a new creature in Christ. Responsibility leads to repentance, which leads to redemption. It's really that simple. What's holding you back from saying those words? Three little words that could change the course of your life forever. I read a story about a, a college dorm room where one of the guys was asleep, and the rest of the guys took some Limburger cheese and rubbed it on his mustache while he was asleep. The guy woke up and said, man, it stinks in here. He walked into the living room and he said, man, it stinks in here. He walked out into the hallway and said, it stinks out here. He walked out in outside, outdoors, and he said, the whole world stinks. Of course, what he didn't realize is the problem was right at the end of the day. I think that's the case with us sometimes. It's in our efforts to look for someone or something to blame, we don't realize the problem is right beneath our nose. We're the problem. But the beautiful thing about this is, God wants us in heaven. One of the most amazing thoughts that comes to my mind often is that God wants Christmas early in heaven. 
That blows my mind. That He still wants me. No matter what I've done wrong, He still wants me. And if you don't get to heaven, if you go to hell, you're going to have to step over the cross of Christ to get there. Because like I said before, you choose hell. God didn't send you there. It's a choice we make. Ready to say, I would love to come now. Just stand as we sing.